Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. How are we doing today, Phil? I'm a bit warm. It's uh, nice and humid here in the UK for this evening, which is a bit of a change. What's it like over there? Well, I'm doing my first podcast in shorts, actually, so <laughs> pretty similar to you. Saucy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're just starting things off tonight a little on the saucy side, I guess. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's relax. Put on some slow beats. So tuned. <laughs> So, Phil, what films are we talking about today? Yes, today we are talking about Demolition Man, starring Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. Well, first of all, we'll be doing Guys and Dolls, which stars Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. And it's our first musical, I think. It is our first musical, and, and very likely could be our last also. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> As I'm not generally a huge fan of musicals, but... Uh, I do make exceptions once in a while. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm much the same. As long as the music, if it's a good musical, it does it does transcend things. But yeah, there there are definitely some that I like, and actually, uh, Moulin Rouge is one of my favorite films, and that's a musical. I think there are good musicals, but I do tend to find that the good ones are outweighed by the. No, I don't want to say the bad ones, but they're outweighed by ones that I don't care for. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good way of putting it. Uh, also, tonight we're going to be revisiting 1997, and we may even have a special surprise guest or two at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. Ooh, exciting times. <laughs> so why don't we start with, uh, let's start with Guys and Dolls tonight, Phil. How's that sound? Works for me. Uh, why don't you take us through it, Mike? All right, sounds good. So, Guys and Dolls, a 1955 movie musical starring Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Gene Simmons, and Vivian Blaine. It was directed by the great Joseph Mankiewicz, and it was based on the stage play of the same name. Now, uh, bear with me. This is a little longer of a synopsis than I thought it would take to explain <laughs> the movie, but I think I've, I've got it pretty succinct. Nathan Detroit is a gambler, played by Frank Sinatra, who sets up illegal craps games, and he's being hounded by Lieutenant Brannigan, who is coming down hard on illegal gambling, and Nathan Detroit can't use any of the places he normally does to set up his illegal gambling. Complicating things in his life currently are his girlfriend, or fiance more, more appropriately, Adelaide, who wants to end their 14-year engagement by getting married, which Nathan is a little reluctant to do. <laughs> She also wants him to go straight, but Nathan doesn't really feel very comfortable with that either. He runs into an old friend of his, Sky Masterson, played by Marlon Brando. I will say the uh, the character names. I do love the character names of Sky Masterson and Nathan Detroit. It's funny you mention that, actually. I have a character in one of my books that I've written whose nickname is Detroit, and it's a character name I've had in my head for probably 30 years or so, no, 20 years or so. Uh, and it's because of Nathan Detroit, because I always loved that name so much that, yeah. you know, a long time when I was a teenager and I was creating stories, I, I always had a character na nicknamed Detroit. And so I've kind of worked that into one of my current stories as well. So I agree. Great names. Awesome. Look forward to reading that story. Thank you. Uh, meanwhile, back in uh, New York, where Guys and Dolls takes place, uh, Nathan Detroit <laughs> runs into Sky Masterson, who is a high roller gambler. He'll bet a huge amount of money on just about anything. So Nathan bets Masterson that he can't take a girl of Nathan's choosing to Havana, Cuba on a, you know, romantic getaway. 
Nathan picks Sergeant Sarah Brown, a woman who works at the Save a Soul Mission, which is a staunchly anti-gambling religious revival type of place. Sky, of course, accepts the bet, and he tells her that he's a gambler who wants to reform, and he promises that he'll get a dozen gamblers into the mission for a meeting if she'll go to Havana with him. Since the mission is in danger of being closed, she agrees to go with him. Sky and Sarah go to Havana. They begin to fall in love. But when they get back to the States and they go to the mission, they find that Nathan has been running an illegal craps game in the empty mission. Sarah's furious and she leaves Sky. Sky feels like he still has to make good on his bet to deliver a dozen sinners to her. And so he finds one of Nathan's games. He saves Nathan just in time from being wiped out by a crooked big-time Chicago gangster named Big Julie. And he rolls the dice on a bet where he'll pay every gambler there $1,000 if he loses. But if he wins, they all have to go to the mission to be saved. The mission is just about to be shut down when it suddenly fills with gamblers who start to confess their sins. Sarah forgives Sky, and the film ends with a double wedding in the middle of Times Square. Sky marries Sarah, and Nathan finally marries long-suffering Adelaide. Hurrah! <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I'm not a huge fan of musicals, but I have to say that I absolutely love, love, love Guys and Dolls. It is a film I've loved since I saw it as a kid. And the music is great, the story is great, the cast is great, and even though it's not a genre I care for, typically speaking, this to me is probably the best musical of all time. How about you, Phil? How are you? How, are you, how do you feel about it? Well, I, I, just, I saw the film a long, long time ago, probably when I was a kid as well, and I hadn't seen it since until doing this episode. It's got great actors in it. I, I enjoyed it, to be honest. I didn't think it was going to, mm -hmm. but because uh, I think oh, it's just—it's always the thought Marlon Brando in a musical, <laughs> right? It all—it always throws me that. Even though I know he's been in it, I'd seen the film before. It just—it's always whenever it's cropped up, guys and dolls I go, oh yeah, it's the one with Marlon Brando in the musical, and it just always—they never seem to go together. Sure, sure. Those those things, but but no, I I really enjoyed it. Probably not my favorite musical, but then at the minute I can't think what my favorite musical would be. <laughs> right. Well, that's fair. That's but, fair. Uh, no, it was, and it's had some great tunes, a nice story, and it was an enjoyable film. Absolutely. All right. So why don't you take us through your day after? Okay. Well, it's not that eventful. The couple have a great. Well, the two couples, sorry, they uh, head on out for their honeymoon uh, with no gambling involved. They have a lovely time. Everything's going smoothly. Big Julie and the other gamblers haven't quite changed their ways, despite them all turning up at the uh, the mission. How, but nicely, nicely, and a couple of others are determined to give it a go because they realize the life's going nowhere and they want to change things around a bit. So that's that. Not the most exciting of things, but that's how the story continues. What about you, Mike? What have you got? All right. Well, uh, mine also starts off with the two married couples going on their honeymoons, uh, but they split up in my version. Nathan and Adelaide actually go to Havana on Sky and Sarah's recommendation, and Sky and Sarah go to Niagara Falls. Now, Nathan and Adelaide have a good long talk about the future. Adelaide still wants Nathan to go legit, and he's willing to try after what happened with him almost getting cleaned out by Big Julie. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know what else he can do for a living. So Adelaide tells him he doesn't have to change overnight, but they're going to work together to come up with a solution that will work for him. Meanwhile, Skye and Sarah discover that honeymooning in Niagara Falls, where there are any number of casinos, was not the best idea. <laughs> she still wants Skye to give up gambling, but he has a hard time not giving in to his temptations. So one night, he sends her back to their hotel room and gets sucked into a casino where he spends the entire night gambling. And when he gets back, he finds her furious. He tries to sing her a song to calm her down, but she interrupts him with a song of her own, in which she says he has to pick her or gambling. And because this is a musical, her song completely changes his mind, and he picks her and gives up gambling forever. Because that's how things work in musicals. Mus yeah, musical magic. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Brilliant, so. brilliant to like that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, how about your immediate aftermath? My immediate aftermath, Sky and Nathan, they're determined to change their ways. They've promised to, to do this to the, the women they love, but they realize that this gambling is their passion. It's been their life for so long, and, and the, their wives do understand this. So they come to a compromise that Sky and Nathan will buy a racehorse. Therefore, they're not going to be gambling on it, but they'll be putting the, the, their racehorse into races and going on like that. It means they're not gambling. They'll still be involved in the life that they've had such a passion for, and they'll still be around these things. And also, Sister Sarah, she realized it will give them a chance to bring in more people to the mission mm. because they'll be making contacts, things like this, and they can say, well, if it's getting too much for you, head on to the mission, she'll put you on the right track. Meanwhile, Nicely Nicely, he's helping out on the mission, along with a few of the other people who uh, wanted to change their ways. And Big but Big Julie approaches Nathan and tries to blackmail him to fix the race with the racehorse. Nathan thinks it over and talks to Sky about it. That's what I've got for the immediate aftermath. Yeah, going to leave us hanging as to whether yeah. to take it or not. All right. Yes, yeah. All right. So what about you? What's uh, your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, Nathan and Sky both have to find a new line of work, so they decide to partner up. Nathan tries to goad Sky into bets once in a while when Sky gets under his skin, but since Sarah sang to him, he's completely cured of his gambler ways. <laughs> they knock around a lot of ideas, but they keep coming up empty for a business that would work well for two reformed gamblers. Eventually, they break out into a song where they toss around ideas. Fedora hat makers, suit salesmen, dice manufacturers, bookies, racehorse owners. <laughs> I go with that one. Uh, but nothing rhymes, and so it doesn't get them excited. So finally, they decide that since they're both so good at coming up with lyrics on the fly, they should start writing songs together. So they go on to write a number of hits for popular 50s and 60s acts such as the Beatles, the Monkees, Neil Diamond, Buddy Holly, the Supremes, and the Wonders, sometimes called the Oneaters. They become one of the most prolific songwriting duos of the 60s. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Wow. God, that's, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so uh, long term for me. Yep. I've got Sky and Nathan working in conjunction with the police, set up a sting and get Big Julie arrested for this blackmail attempt. Uh, he's now out of their life. He goes down for a long, long time. Good choice. The years go by. Nathan and uh, Miss Adelaide, they have a couple of kids. Life's really good for all of them because it's a musical. These things always <laughs> end up go, end up being really nice. There's some right. some hardship, the usual stuff. But for Nathan and Miss Adelaide, it's great. Uh, they've got a nice little family. Sky and Sarah, they try to have uh, kids, but find out they're unable. But they push through the upset. They have a rough patch and almost split up. But they keep it together. And they end up adopting a couple of kids. Uh, but Sky and Nathan are determined to keep things honest in their life. And they have great success with their horse. And they buy more and more horses have more and more success until they have one of the most respected stables in the u.s and that's just what i brought it down to it's very nice there's no nothing matter not bringing it around to another film i just thought that's the way it would go that makes perfect sense yeah i like it actually you know you. that's one of the things i i know i tend to do that a lot but you know well, we, i do as well right yeah, but, but we you know we can have endings where we, we where yeah. we don't we don't go meta you know or turn them into somebody from another movie i mean i think that's okay i was like that when i was thinking of writing it down i suddenly went but it doesn't tie into anything. <laughs> but then I thought, it doesn't have to. Right. It's, it's almost like a twist because people mm, are starting yeah. to expect it. So when you don't tie into something else, it's like, ooh, yeah. I didn't see that coming. But it threw me for a minute. <laughs> sure. I, I almost tried to shoehorn, she, uh, shoehorn Seabiscuit into it. But, I, uh, I was wondering yeah. if you were going yeah. there, actually. So. Yeah, I, thought, I thought best not. There you go. <laughs> So what about your long term? Come on, I want to know what happens. All right. Well, as the 70s dawn and, and disco begins to become a thing, Nathan and Skye become disenfranchised with the pop music scene. They want to move their talents to something else, something bigger. So they decide to write a musical based on their younger lives when they were single, <laughs> swinging bachelors and big-time gamblers. 
They call it Guys and Dolls, and it debuts on Broadway to rave reviews and huge numbers. Eventually, Hollywood comes calling and hires Sky and Nathan to write a film version of the play, and they do, and the film becomes a huge success. So Nathan and Sky pack up Sarah and Adelaide and move to Hollywood to become screenwriters. <laughs> they go on to write some of the most successful Hollywood musicals of all time, including Grease, Newsies, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Annie, and all that jazz. But... That elusive Oscar remains out of their grasp, and they become very focused on winning one. Year after year, they're passed over, until one year, finally, while they're on stage to present an Oscar for Best Musical Score, they break out into an impromptu song about wanting to win an Oscar. <laughs> the audience joins in, and the night ends with the Academy changing their mind about the night's screenwriting winner and awarding the pair with an Oscar for their latest film. Oh, ex oh brilliant. Because as we know, songs and musicals change everything. Yeah. That's right. It's that's a very good point. Yeah, <laughs> no, I like that. You can think that with uh, with lots of musicals, though, where it could be based on real people's lives, and they've 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 gone through all those events, and then, as you said, with these characters, they then write it all down and make a musical out of it. That would sort of make sense for lots of musicals. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think it would. Oh, I like that. Yeah, thank you. So that's our ending for Guys and Dolls. Phil, do you have any exciting trivia about the film? Uh, well, a few little bits and pieces. The, the main one is that Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando really didn't get on. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah, Frank Sinatra didn't like the fact that Marlon Brando was the star and role, while Sinatra mm. got the lesser. I, could so, I can sort of see that. Yeah. It's, it's, it would have made a bit more sense to have them flipped around. Right. But that's the way it was. Also, uh, Marlon Brando... For his musical numbers, they were it was put together from multiple takes. Oh, that I can see. He didn't really yeah. like memorizing lines or things. Yeah, like he that. did that, and it's, it was just to get the best one. But apparently, he had to, when it was done and put together. He then tried to mime to these things. It was just he said he was trying to rush through. He couldn't breathe at some of it because of the way it was put together, which was interesting. Hmm. Uh, then there was one bit. There was a, the scene with the cheesecake. Yes, the scene where Sky and Nathan first meet. They had to quit for the day when Sinatra had too much cheesecake, and he couldn't take one more bite. Turns out that Marlon Brando knew that Sinatra hated cheesecake and uh, deliberately messed up the lines every now and again to to, to watch him eat <laughs> another piece. <laughs> That's great. That seems like a very Brando thing to do. It's a shame they didn't get along. They have great chemistry on screen together, but oh yeah, I know it's uh, it's it's a shame. But you can you can understand it. I can understand Frank Sinatra because he was a bit of an egomaniac anyway, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And I get the I always got the impression that Marlon Brando he he finds the whole. He found the whole acting thing ridiculous, so he just tried to get away with whatever he could. Right. My understanding is he loved food and money, but didn't really care for yeah. acting. But he did it so he could afford lots of yeah. food and money. So well, that's uh, that's a know. great way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever works. <laughs> and what's the other thing? Oh yeah, and Sky Masterson's real name was Obadiah. Oh well, that's a odd choice. I would never have guessed. Yeah, Obadiah Masterson. I quite like. I like Sky more. Yeah, I think Sky has a little better yeah. ring to it. Obadiah's like a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. But that's Guys and Dolls. I think it'd make a good double bill, though, if you're going to watch Guys and Dolls and then Apocalypse Now. <laughs> totally. I almost started trying to think of a way to get, trying to get Sky Masterson to become Colonel Kurtz, but that was a bit too much of a stretch. It's <laughs> a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but I'm sure you could have made it work. Yeah, yeah. Frank Sinatra could have been the Dennis Hopper character. There you go. There you yeah. go. <laughs> All right. So that's Guys and Dolls. If you have thoughts on our ending or you would like to share your after the endings for it, you can contact us. We'll tell you how to do that at the end of the episode. But for now, why don't we move on to Demolition Man? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Murder, death, kill. Uh, Phil, why don't you take us through the events that led to Sylvester Stallone in the future? Okay. Uh, well, Demolition Man, 1993 film directed by Marco Brambilla. Or Brambilla. It was his directorial debut and it was a pretty good... 
uh, debut, to be honest. Yeah, I like it. I, have, I thought this film was a lot of fun. Yeah, an enjoyable action romp, sci-fi action romp. Star Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Sandra Bullock, Nigel Hawthorne and Dennis Leary. We open in 1996 where Simon Phoenix, who's Wesley Snipes' character, he's a nasty guy. He's kidnapped some hostages after going on a crime spree and he's holed up in a warehouse with his gang. LAPD Sergeant John Spartan, again, he's got some great names in this film. Definitely. He leads leads an unauthorised assault on the building, but before they go in there, he does a thermal scan and it shows no hostages, just the gang. So they go in to try and take out Phoenix and, the, and uh, the other bad guys. But Phoenix blows up the building and the police later find the dead bodies of the hostages. Spartan is charged with manslaughter and along with Phoenix, they are cryogenically frozen and will be rehabilitated while in the frozen. You know, it's one of those brain download things that's going on while they're sleeping. We are in the year 2032 in the city or the... Me- <clears throat> In the city of San Angeles, which is an amalgamation of Los Angeles. It was an amalgamation of Los Angeles, San Diego and San Francisco. So the city's now a utopia, but uh, lots of personal freedoms and things have been forbidden. So it's, it's just to keep the peace. And there hasn't been much crime in the intervening years. We are then with Simon Phoenix. He, he wakes, he's brought out of the cryo-freeze for a parole hearing. But while he's there, he suddenly realises that he knows various ac- access codes and things that he needs to escape from the police is all a bit odd and he doesn't quite figure it out but he's on the run and then goes on a bit of a crime wave the police of san angeles haven't seen this for years they don't quite know how to deal with it so the the solution is to wake john spartan to help them which is not the one not the solution i would have gone for but that's what they <laughs> right. do yeah. uh, and he's paired with uh, lieutenant lenina huxley who's played by the lovely sandra bullock she's his handler and she also has this quirk where she loves all things 20th century so it seems a perfect fit so she's show she's a uh, spartan's guide through 2032 and introduces him to the various things going on uh, such as the three seashells and the fact that everybody loves Taco Bell. It's the only restaurant left, actually. Yeah, that's right. Which it is, isn't in, it? Yeah. in my ideal future, that makes this a utopia because I could eat Taco Bell every single day for the rest of my life. So I've, I've, Well, I've been to America a few times, but I've never actually had Taco Bell. Oh, you've never had Taco Bell, Phil? No. No. Oh man, I gotta tell you, I'm I have an unhealthy obsession with Taco <laughs> Bell. Actually, so if a Taco Bell, anybody listening uh, who works at corporate wants to sponsor us, I can uh, <laughs> I'd be more than happy to uh, share my love for Taco Bell every single episode. So just uh, you know, just give us a call. Well, funny enough though, I was reading apparently the European version it was changed for Pizza Hut. Oh, really? With logos we changed and redubbed, but I'm sure when I've seen the film, it's always been Taco Bell. Right, right. That's interesting. But I might I might be mistaken, but that's. But I can understand why they change these kind of things sometimes. But well, that yeah, that makes sense if you know people don't know Taco yeah. Bell. But oh, it's a it's a culinary delight, Phil. I'm telling you. <laughs> okay. Well, I shall try it one day. Yeah. Uh, I hope I'm not disappointed, Mike. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot to live up to. It. I think. I think it will. It, listen, if you want the best, you know, cheap Mexican-ish food around, Me- Mexican, you can't beat Taco Bell. Okay. Boy, I'm just really winning over those sponsors with the way I describe it, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. I think well, that's going to be it. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, well, we'll definitely getting on this guy after the ending. Sponsored by Taco Bell. Hey, I I think it's a per- it's a pairing made in heaven. So you know. <laughs> okay. Well, just just saying. Yeah. You heard it here first, people. Yeah, let's get back to the film then. Okay, F. So Phoenix, he's on the way to take out Dr. Raymond Cocteau, who's played by Nigel Hawthorne and who's sort of the de facto ruler of San Angeles. He's the one preaching all this peace, peace, love, hope, and all this thing. Once Phoenix gets there and he tries to shoot Cocteau, he finds he's unable to. It's uh, sort of like a Robocop kind of thing going on with OCP. Uh, But it turns out that Cocteau was the one who... uh, 
fed all the information into Simon Phoenix while he was in cryo. Cocteau's not a very nice man. No. And he asked Phoenix to, to kill uh, resistance leader Edgar Fenley, who's played by Dennis Leary. And to do that, Phoenix releases more criminals. Things aren't looking good for the police force of San Angeles. Luckily, though, John Spartan's there. He helps Edgar Fenley fight Phoenix. And Phoenix tells Spartan that the 1996 hostages were already dead, meaning Spartan was innocent. Oh, no, Spartan's destroyed. His, his life was, was frozen for no good reason. But he's determined to get revenge on Phoenix even more. Eventually, after various comings and goings, Phoenix again tries to kill Cocteau because he doesn't like being controlled, but he can't. And Cocteau thinks he's got the upper hand, but then Phoenix points out that the criminal gang that he's got behind him can actually kill Cocteau, and boom, there we go. Uh, Spartan chases Phoenix down to the prison. They fight and have, you know, major fisticuffs. Things get blown up, things get burnt. There's lots of cryo-nitro things floating around in the air. And Spartan wins by freezing Phoenix and then breaking him apart into a million billion pieces. Uh, so the, it ends, we end the film with the police and the resistance meeting up and working together to make a better society, which isn't quite as strict, a bit more human and a bit more fun. The end. Very nicely done. So there you have it. That's Demolition Man. So what do you have, Mike, for the day after? Well, you may recall that in the film, Spartan and Huxley attempt to have, uh, shall we say, a romantic liaison, only to find out that it's done mostly through like a virtual reality synaptic connection. Yeah. And at the end of the film, Spartan kisses Huxley and she's all a tingle because that's what she didn't never really knew what physical contact was like. So... After the film ends, Spartan takes Huxley back to her apartment and teaches her the real way to get romantic. Mm -hmm. In return for him showing her such a good time, she teaches him finally to use the three seashells. Yes. Which is, can, yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. very important for him. Uh, and for those people who haven't seen the film or who don't remember, the three seashells was basically the replacement for toilet paper in the future. It's just three yeah. shells on a shelf. It was kind of a running gag throughout the film that he never knew how to use it and they never explained it. So, Well, apparently Stallone did, though, in an interview. Oh, really? And it's it doesn't still doesn't make much sense. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, he was saying he used them like two of them like chopsticks to pull, <laughs> and then the th the third was used to scrape what was left over. But then oh. it's not for, not very sanitary. It just I doesn't always, make. Yeah, I always assumed it was some sort of like sonic cleaning system and that controlled the you know. That's what I yeah. I always went with that. It was just they just happened to be. Shaped like seashells, yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to keep the mystery and just say yeah. that she teaches him to use the three seashells. We still don't know exactly how they work. Yeah. The next day, Spartan asks Huxley for her help in tracking down his daughter because we know that his wife died, but we don't ever find out what happened to his daughter. She agrees to help him and assumes that it's going to be a simple matter of looking her up in the computer. But when she tries to find her, the computer finds no record of her. Not even not just a current record, but any record of her existing at all. This sets Spartan out on a mission to find his daughter. Nice. And that's my day after. All right. Thank you. So, Phil, how about you? How's your day after take us? Well, it's a little bit similar to yours. Uh, Spartan and Huxley, after the, the major events that have, going, that have gone on, they deserve a break. And so they, they head off to uh, the beach and have a few wild and crazy days full of sun, booze, sex, proper sex, and Taco Bell. I'm just going to say that I think the fact that a very young and attractive Sandra Bullock was one of the leads in this film clearly had an impact as we both went right to the, well, they go back and have sex right well, away. Well, it's just, yeah, yeah I'm not, it's just the way it was set up. I, I know. <laughs> With I that know. machine thing. Right, oh, but, right, exactly. But, uh, but, but not when, a coincidence, obviously. I know, I know. That's, I know. Uh, but uh, it's funny enough, though, uh, Laurie Petty originally played the character that uh, Sandra Bullock did, but only really? for a few days of filming, she, oh. then, uh, they replaced it with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, Sandra Bullock is great in this movie. Mm. Yeah, it was sort of like a big... So was it like a breakout role, this one? Or was it you know, speed? this was speed, actually... Was this was right before Speed. So this was sort of the role that when Speed came out, 
eagle-eyed viewers like myself were like, hey, that's the girl from Demolition Man, yeah. because nobody really remembered her name at that point. And then, of course, Speed, she became a household name. But yeah. but this was actually kind of her first big break, yeah. Okay. We should do a, an After the Ending for Speed, because uh, Speed 2 is dreadful, so we can ignore that. <laughs> we can yeah. just ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. okay, so yeah. So uh, Spartan and Huxley uh, are having a great time. And the meanwhile, the police start checking the prison after all the damage that was done by Spartan and Phoenix. And they find that a number of criminals were still unaccounted for. They didn't get the whole gang. Uh. Edgar Friendly and the rebels are glad that they no longer have to hide. And talks are going on between them and the police just to see about what they're going to do and how things are going to work out. So that's my day after. What about your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, Spartan goes to Edgar Friendly for help. You know, Friendly is working with the government now to try and fix the societal problems that led to the the scraps, the resistance fighters being marginalized and having to live underground. Spartan figures he'll probably have some contacts that can help him since he knows, you know, since he was kind of a de facto criminal, if you will. Yeah. So Friendly doesn't have the answers, but he connects Spartan with a network of what he calls the nine old men, who are sort of like a quorum, if you will, of uh, old men who served as kind of an advisory council when he was leading the underground. They're basically all grizzled old, like, war veterans who had been through the worst of the 20th century and in seeing kind of the worst that the old world had to offer. Okay. So Spartan thanks him, goes off with Huxley to meet them so they can help him find his daughter. When he arrives at their headquarters, which is an abandoned warehouse, of course, Mm -hmm. he's introduced to them. Their names are Barney Ross, Jack Carter, Gabe Walker, Raymond Tango, Marion Cobra Cobretti, Lincoln <laughs> Hawk, Freddie Heflin, John Rambo, and Rocky Balboa. Oh, oh excellent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wow, you've gone, you've gone full meta. I went full meta today, I know. It's bad, isn't it? I no, it's really it. good. I like that. <laughs> so uh, the group agrees to help Spartan find his daughter, and that's where we leave things for now. How about you? What do you got for the immediate aftermath? So the immediate aftermath. Spartan and Huxley are still together, stayed together. They get on really well. They have a great time, but it's uh, they've still got a lot to do. They end up leading a police task force to bring in the escaped criminals. These criminals, while they've been out there, they've also started recruiting other people who weren't too happy spreading the badness, as it were. Uh, but uh, but Spartan and Huxley, this task force that's put together, they're very successful, but the various crimes and the and the few murders which have been happening lead to the general population starting to panic. However, now they've got Ed, Edgar Fenley there. He helps by going on TV and giving regular updates. He becomes the face of this the new the new world order, as it were. Various personal freedoms are slowly introduced, reintroduced, sorry. Uh, it'll all take time, but things are looking good for the future. However... A, cr- a couple of the criminals, uh, led by a guy called Winston Smith, who managed to fake his death, they leave San Angeles. They travel deeper into America, and uh, he-, he gets hold of a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And through judicious planning and a bit of luck, he ends up setting it off, and that uh, that causes a small-scale conflict within the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's not that good at the minute. But that- that's where I leave you, and we now go to your long term. All right, I I have a sneaking suspicion we may have ended up. In a similar place, but in very different ways. Yeah, so, I, th- I think so, too. There's, we'll there's, yeah, there's a, we'll yeah. see what happens. I, I, I think you went more in that direction than I did, but that's okay. Okay. All right. So, my long term. The nine old men use their underground connections to point Spartan in the right direction. It turns out his daughter was involved in a secret government project that was so classified that her entire existence had been wiped from the public record. Spartan and Huxley travel across the country to New York so that Spartan can be reunited with her. They find her outside her apartment where she's living under a fake name with a new identity. After a tearful reunion with his daughter, she reveals that the project she's been working on is actually time travel. She offers to send John back to his own time, which takes him aback because he's just starting to get used to the idea of living in the future. 
Ultimately, he decides to stay in the future because he realizes that even with all the flaws in the future society, it's still better than the world that he's left behind, and it has the possibility of improving even more. So Spartan and Huxley head back to California, where they take up the reforms of the justice system, and Spartan really becomes ultimately known for his catchphrase, which he says mostly as a joke, but it becomes what he's most famous for, and that catchphrase is, I am the law. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> I had a feeling. So there we go. That's my long term. So so take us home, Phil. You you went uh I think I think you went full yeah. full I am the law. So let's yeah. see what happens. Okay, so my long term. Uh, there are some similarities, but I think it's uh it's the nature of the game when you got Stallone involved in oh, of course. Fut- futuristic law enforcement. Yep. Uh Spartan and Huxley had a good life together. They they brought in a lot of criminals, they made a big difference. Uh, they helped track down Winston Smith, who started this this terrible event which had gone on. Years had gone by, and Spartan and Huxley, after a good life, they both died of old age. They managed to do what everybody in law enforcement wants to do, get out and live a long time afterwards there. But their, their legacy lives on. However, large areas of America became a radioactive wasteland in the small conflict that went on. San Angeles, due to the fact that the work of Spartan and Huxley, they managed to keep things together. Uh, but other large urban areas in the U.S., fall into chaos but to help combat this chaos a new form of law enforcement based on the work of john spartan is put into effect on the east coast of america it's decided that spartan is needed once more so he is cloned and it is hoped he will bring fear and dread to the criminal (laughs) underworld yep yeah the clone knowing he's not the original john spartan he decides to change his name to joe and heads Mm -hmm. out to his first shift on the streets of mega city one very nice. <laughs> Very nice. It's not surprising that they both ended up coming to Judge Dredd. Like you said, Stallone, futuristic yeah. law enforcement. I mean, it's a very natural kind of yeah. connection to make. So not the first time we've done that and probably not the last. Yeah. And it sort of makes it makes the appeal of the Stallone Judge Dredd a little bit, <laughs> right. a bit better. Right. Got to find something good to say about yeah. it, right? <laughs> that, that, that's what frustrated me with the, the Judge Dredd film, though, was the fact it was uh, it looked so good. They got Mega City 1 looking so good. Yep. And the, and the, you know you had one of the ABC warriors in the background. You just yeah, you got the huge block war thing going on. Yeah, and then it just. Oh. You know what I thought was funny too when I was watching Demolition Man, I forgot that Rob Schneider was in it. Yes, yeah, yeah. He has a small yeah. role, and I was like, "What is it with Stallone and Schneider in futuristic law enforcement movies? Like, it's bad enough that Schneider <laughs> kind of ruined Judge Dredd, and now he's here in this movie too." I'm like, "What did they did they did like Stallone lose a bet or something?" Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I thought that was very strange. May, I, I get the impression they probably just really get on with each other. Yeah, may, yeah, maybe that's what mm-hmm. it is. Could be one of those things. You know, it's funny. I remember when the original Judge Dredd with Stallone came out, I actually really liked it and i was one of the only people obviously um, <laughs> but then they put it out on blu-ray a couple of years ago and i was like oh sweet i love that movie and i watched it again and it's terrible yeah like <laughs> i don't know what i was thinking that first time around no, I, I sort of had the same thing yeah i saw it and was going wow yeah and then seeing it again and you're going oh yeah no. they just did not did not do a good job with it it's that first all. 10 minutes though when he's taking down the gangs and you go yeah wow, and he still has the helmet on and everything yeah, like i think definitely... they've got this and then they just no yeah it went it went right down the tubes but still it was it was good for this demolition man after the ending anyway <laughs> exactly it served its purpose for us yes. that's right uh, but i do the demolition man is a very fun film judge dread yeah. is not so if you're looking for a futuristic stallone cop movie i recommend demolition man over yeah. judge dread and, and it hasn't it hasn't aged too badly no it really uh, hasn't actually yeah. I, I think it holds up pretty well i mean there's definitely a few parts that are kind of a little cheesy or silly here or there but by and large i just watched it a couple nights ago and i really enjoyed watching it if you take it for what it is which is a 90s action film with sylvester yeah. stallone you know it's it's a good time it's a, it's a really good time yeah that's it really is all right, so Phil, how about some interesting tidbits about this film? Okay, well, uh, the character Sandra Bullock played was called Lenina Huxley, 
which was based on... Was it Aldous Huxley? Yes, Aldous Huxley. Yes, score one for the English major. And also from his book, uh, Brave New World, Right. Uh, the character is called Lenina Crown. So that's where they got the first name from. Oh, I didn't. That I didn't care. Yes, well, I mean, I didn't get that one either. But uh, we got that one. Also, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal were offered... Uh, with the original choices for the film. Hmm. Uh, Van Damme was offered the role of the bad guy, so that was Simon Phoenix, but he right. didn't want it. So uh-huh. he, he said he'd do the film, but if it could be swapped around. But Steven Seagal uh, didn't want to play the bad guy. Right. And I'm, uh, I'm glad yeah. it wasn't uh, either of them, to be honest, because John claude Van Damme's done a few sci-fi action films anyway, right, Time right. Cop and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, and also Jackie Chan was offered the role of Simon Phoenix, but he declined. Yeah, interesting. Mm, I'd actually, I don't know. I, I can't really see him in the film. I couldn't see yeah. him working. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Mm. That one's not working for me either. And uh, also, there's uh, Wesley Snipes apparently had to slow down his kicks and punches as his real ones because he's a black belt in whatever martial art it is. Right. Uh, his the real punches and kicks were so fast that they blurred on camera. Oh wow, that's yeah. interesting. I, know. Yeah, I mean, he definitely knows his stuff in that in that arena. That's for sure. Mm. And uh, Jack Black had a cameo. Yes, that I caught. He's one of the scraps. Yeah. Yeah. I caught his name in the credits. I didn't see him, but I saw. I did catch his name in the credits. Oh, yeah, and the, uh, I quite like this. The action figure of Demolition Man in full armor was a repainted He-Man action figure from the <laughs> 1990 cool. line. Yeah, yeah well, it could have been a totally different film if you had Laurie Patty, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Steven Seagal. Yeah, I don't think it would have been as quite no. as well-remembered <laughs> if that yeah. was the cast. I think, I think it would have been like a direct-to-DVD thing. Of it. Yeah, probably. So there you go. All right, so those are our endings for Demolition Man. Hope you enjoyed them. Phil, what do you say we move on to our newest mini feature? Yes, let's do it. This should be uh, a nice, a fun little one to do. Yeah, I think so too. So we decided to do a new feature called Recasting the Classics, where we are going to take a classic film of our choosing, and we are going to cast it as if it were being made today, using today's actors, and we're going to decide who we think would best fill the roles that were made iconic by somebody else in the past. So, Phil, what film are we doing tonight? Well, first of all, let's give uh, let's let the the listeners know some of the names we were trying to come up with for this one. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna pull those out on me, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, where are they? <laughs> Thanks, Phil. They're good names. Uh, okay, all right. Let's uh, let's hear them then. So, I said recasting classics, which is all right, but then you you gave it the little finesse it needed. So, it's actually called recasting the classics. But these are some of the ones that Mike came up with. Hold on, it's like a tongue twister. Classic casting cacophony craziness. Mm, that's a winner. Classic casting cacophony. I can't do it too fast. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite was crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. I don't know why we didn't go with that one, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, well, here we go then, uh, listeners. Here we are with the first episode of crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. <sighs> all right you know sometimes sometimes i send phil ideas late at night you know this is this is what happens i was i was sat in a beer garden when you sent this over so i, I was finding <laughs> these quite amusing oh i'm sure so you were very receptive to them you're like yes yeah, i was, good I was going this is the best name ever <laughs> all right well i think we'll stick with recasting the classics for yeah. now but uh today we are we decided to start with the granddaddy of them all and that is star wars a new hope. That's right. Figured why not start with pretty much the most popular film of all time. Okay, so the rules are pretty simple. Basically, we're recasting the major roles from the film that we pick. We can only use people who are acting currently, and I think that's about all the rules we have. Right, Phil? Uh, I think so. We can always add more if we need to, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we need to. So let's start from work our way from the bottom up. How's that sound? We'll go from the smaller characters to the biggest characters. Okie doke. All right, so how about C-3PO? Who'd you pick for C-3PO? C-3PO, I picked Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory. Oh, great choice. Sheldon Cooper, yes. I didn't think about him. I picked Martin Freeman, who you probably know best as Bilbo Baggins, and also from the Fargo TV show. I think he has that kind of nebbishy British sort of... Mm. 
effect that would work. So I uh, didn't. He played an android in the Hitchhiker's. Oh no, he was no, he was in the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He didn't right. do. Who did the voice of Marvin the Paranoid Android? Wasn't that Alan, Alan Rickman? Rickman? Yeah, it was Alan Rickman. Yep. Yeah. Oh, there we go. How about how about Grand Moff Tarkin? Grand Moff Tarkin would be Lance Henriksen. That's funny that you picked him for that, actually. Very interesting. All right. Nice yes. choice. Yeah, so people, if you're not aware, Lance Henriksen, you'll all be aware if you listen to this, but for the ones who maybe don't, he was uh, in Aliens, Pumpkinhead, and lots of other brilliant things. And Millennium, the TV Millennium, show. all of that yeah. show. I'm going to need to get that on DVD. Just yeah. that on DVD. Love that show, though. So for my Tarkin, I actually went and I flipped the gender, and I picked Sigourney Weaver. Oh, I like that. Because now that she's a little older, she's got kind of like a real intensity to her. Not that she didn't always. I mean, she's a great actress. But I thought, like, wouldn't it be cool to see her with, like, her hair all slicked back, playing, like, you know, like... She'd be really good, wouldn't she? Right. A big, big, tough, bad guy. Kind of like Ripley if she went really, really wrong. You know what I mean? Oh, I see what you mean, though, when I mentioned Lance Henriksen. Then, yeah, we've got the two, the aliens duo going on. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right, yeah. yeah. All right. How about uh, Ben Kenobi? Ben Kenobi, well, I, first of all, I was thinking I was going to gender swap Ben Kenobi as having, have it as Judy Dench. Oh, a good choice. Judy Dench. But then I decided, no, I, I, I then went with Timothy Dalton. I think he'd make a really good Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Got, but it'd be a bit more intense, a bit more intense than uh, Alec Guinness. Right, right. Yeah, yeah but, but that's okay. I mean, this is, you know, this is our casting mm. version, so I think it's okay to switch things up a little bit. So who about, what about your Ben Kenobi? Well, funny you should mention that. I picked Lance Henriksen for my Ben Kenobi. Oh, wow, okay. Because I, I know I thought he's a little more of kind of a grizzled, dark version. But Ben Kenobi, like, everyone likes to sort of make him out to be like he's a big teddy bear, but he's kind of a little gruff at times, you yeah. know? So I thought that, that our version with Lance Henriksen, he'd be a little bit more, you know, a little more of a, of a tougher Jedi, yeah. you know? I, I, could, I could see him. He... I, he... He would look like he's been living in the desert for a long time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's good, good choice for Kenobi. How about your choice for Darth Vader? Well, Darth Vader, I'm just going with the voice because you just need some. Come, not, I'm not saying that David Prowse didn't do a great job, but you just you do. They didn't use his voice in the final cut, so you need a big guy inside. So uh, that could be any big guy, right. Who can act, right? Uh, but I'm going with the voice. Uh, I would pick Clancy Brown. Ah, yes, 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 a favorite of ours. Yes, yes. the Kagan from Highlander. Yeah, that's right. Great voice. Very nice. Well, I uh, similar to you, I went with I went with the voice mostly, but also somebody who could play in the suit. I think if he if he needed to, and I went with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think we saw with Smaug, he can play a good uh, a good bad guy. Yeah, and he certainly got the screen presence for it. So. Yeah, I could hear his voice coming out. All right, how about uh, Han Solo? Han Solo. Well. I was going to go with the obvious thing of Chris Pratt because, you know, oh, the, yeah. Indiana Jones, everybody was saying, you know, right, Chris right. Pratt should do the young one. But somehow but, he didn't occur to me, but I mm, probably would have picked him if he did. But, but I, I didn't go with him in the end. But then I was going to gender swap Han Solo. Uh-huh. And I, I thought Eva Green. Because oh, I just okay. thought that would be, be mad. But I could see her doing it. You know, she's got that. She can be playful and that cocky and do all that kind of stuff and a bit goofy. Yeah, definitely. But then in the end, I went with uh, Michael Fassbender. Okay, Michael Fassbender. Mm. I like that. That's a good yeah. choice. I thought he'd be good because he can do the same as well. He's. He's usually quite intense, but he's also, you know, he's got he's got a good comedic talent, and he can he can mix, mix things up. Yeah, he can do anything pretty much, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I went with a slightly different direction with Han Solo, and I actually picked Nathan Fillion. Oh yeah. Because I figured, even though he's getting a little older, but Han is definitely older than Luke and Leia by a, by a bit. So I figured, you know, he kind of already sort of played a Han Solo character in Firefly. Oh, such a good show. Why did it get cancelled? <laughs> it was. I know. I know. <sighs> 
but uh, yeah, so I thought Nathan Fillion would make a good uh, a good space cowboy if you. Yeah, were. oh, I should have. Sorry, Nathan, I should have picked you as well. That's a better <laughs> choice for Han Solo. So Nathan, no, they're both good. Choices. We, we know you're a regular listener, so right, <laughs> right. You got you got my vote, Nathan. Just ignore yeah. Phil, Mister Fassbender over here. Damn it! All right, how about uh, Princess Leia? Princess Leia. Uh, I was going to go with Chloe Grace Moretz, Chloe mm-hmm. Moretz, however she likes to be known now. But then, <laughs> I don't know, it didn't seem to go. I was thinking, like, because it was they originally meant to be teenagers, weren't they? So I was trying to cast yeah. with the age, but then it, it didn't quite work for me. Right. Uh, so I decided that Emma Stone would be Princess uh, Leia. That's a good choice. She's very, yeah. like, sassy, yeah. you know, very intelligent, very, you know, just, yeah, great choice. Okay. And what about y- yours? Well, you know, it's funny because she was probably the character I had the hardest time with. And so I actually eventually settled on Olivia Wilde. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. I think, you know, was in Tron and uh, Tron Legacy, I should say, and a bunch of other movies for people who don't who don't know her. But, you know, she's I figure she's got the beauty part down because she's obviously quite beautiful. Um, but I've seen her in a number of different roles, you know, some more dramatic, some more comedic. I think she kind of can do the the strong and sassy bit, but also can be a little more demure when she needs to. So I thought it would make an interesting choice for Princess Leia. No. Oh, she'd, she'd be good because I like it when she pops up in Portlandia. She's very funny in that thing she does there. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And for the farm boy who saves the galaxy, who do we have for Luke Skywalker? I have picked Evan Peters. Ah, good. You know, who played Quicksilver in X-Men in the, the last X-Men movie. And he's going to be in X-Men Apocalypse. Right. Uh, and he was in American Horror Story. Yeah, he's in that as well, isn't he? But yeah, I think I could see him as Luke Skywalker. He's got a bit, he can be the innocent, but then when he... When Luke goes a bit dark, he can uh, I could he can bring the intensity as well. Right, right, excellent. So that's that. What about your Luke Skywalker? I like that. Well, I'll tell you, I was really close to going with Ty Sheridan, which I think will be a surprise <laughs> to nobody because he's the right age. I think he's a great actor, you know. Um, but ultimately, I ended up going with Grant Gustin, who plays the Flash oh, on TV, yeah. oh, because can... I think that his Barry Allen character is very similar in ways to Luke. You know, kind of naive. Yeah. You know, very kind of got that sort of farm boyish type of attitude, you know, but yeah. when he needs to, he can get stuff done, you know. So I, I thought he would make a kind of a good choice. He's kind of got that. He's real skinny. You know, he's not like a big muscle bound guy. Yeah, so yeah. I thought he could be a fun choice for Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Grant Gustin is Luke Skywalker. Then you can have uh, Melissa. Oh, what's her name? Play Supergirl as Princess Oh, Melissa Leia. Benoist. Yeah. Yeah. Those two would be good because they were great in the, uh, the Supergirl episode. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That'd be fun. Good casting, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think. Hey, listen. I think either one of those casts would be a blockbuster. So. I'd, I'd watch. I'd watch either of those casts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's recasting the classics or crazy classic, crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. There you go. You do that quite well. And Mike, Mike has Mike hasn't just copied and pasted that. That's me. I've said it right every right. single time. That's impressive, Phil. Very <laughs> impressive. All right, so uh, if you like our Recasting the Classics mini-feature, let us know. We're always trying to find out which of these mini-features you guys are enjoying and which ones you sort of roll your eyes at. So tell us what you think. And also, if you have a cast of Star Wars that you think would be cool, send it our way, and we would love to share it on the air. We'll fill you in on how to do that in just a little bit. Hey, I enjoyed that. Personally, if I was voting, I'd, I'd pick this, this one as a mini-feature because I really enjoyed that one. Oh, good. Well, mm-hmm. I did too. Yeah, good so. choices. Chances are good, listeners, you'll hear that one again in the future. Yeah. Nathan Fillion is Han Solo. Yeah, I should have picked that myself. <laughs> you know what? It's You're always going to forget people that you yeah, didn't think yeah. of, and then you're going to go, oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, so. Yeah. All right, well, moving on then, it is time for 100 Years of Film in 100 Episodes, the section of the show where we take a random year from Hollywood's first 100 years, and we share our top 10 favorite films from said year. This year, Phil, we are doing... 
1997. Yes. So why don't you jump in that time machine of yours, take us back to 1997, and set the scene. So 1997, what did we have? Here in the UK, we had Tony Blair being sworn in as PM. While over in the US, Bill Clinton is an, was inaugurated for his second term. We learned about Dolly the Sheep being a clone. The comet Hale-Bopp makes its closest approach to Earth, and there was various uh, doomsday cults saying, oh my God, we're all going to die, and we didn't, unless we are currently living in a hologram kind of Matrix thing. Right, we might be. You, you know. never know. Yeah, who knows. Uh, Teletubbies debuted in the UK. Mm, hooray. Yeah. Uh, 1997, I can't believe they're that old. Uh, but over in Japan, Pokemon, the Pokemon animated show premiered, which uh, was a little bit better than Teletubbies. Yes, and quite successful. Mm. IBM's Deep Blue defeated Gary Kasparov, which first time a computer had beaten one of the Grandmasters. And a little book called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was published. Right. 1997, yeah? Yeah, crazy. And that would be Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for us Americans, because apparently the publishers thought that Americans weren't smart enough to understand the word philosopher. So thanks for that. Yeah, I never quite understood that. Yeah, Uh, Me neither. Yeah. Uh, The first genetically modified three-parent baby was born. Which uh, well, I had no idea. Three what now? What are you, what are you talking about? Three-parent baby. What the like, hell is a three-parent baby? It's had genes from three parents, apparently. I don't think we need to talk about that. I know, it's just, cra- <laughs> it's just crazy, but that was 1997. That's, that is yeah. crazy. Oh, my yeah. goodness. All right. Uh, Steve Jobs returned to Apple, and South Park debuted for the first time. We also had a few births. 1997, we had, I've already mentioned it, Chloe Grace Moretz. Mm-hmm. Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones and Bella Thorne. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did lose Terry Nation, who was big thing about Doctor Who. Yep. Uh, the poet, Alan Ginsberg, Jeff Buckley. And then we had uh, Robert Mitchum, James Stewart, Red Skelton, Mother Teresa, John Denver, Michael Hutchins, and Princess Diana all died mm. in 1997. All right. Well, there you go. So that was 1997. And we are going to share our top 10 films for the year. Phil. Why don't you start us off then and share your number 10? My number 10 is uh, something you'd like to know more about. It is Starship Troopers. Very good. Yep. Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, Neil Patrick Harris, directed by Paul Verhoeven, based on the book by Robert Heinlein. And it's uh, it's not the greatest film in the world, but it's I really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. It's just a lot of pretty people fighting, fighting bugs. It's very Paul Verhoeven. Though, yeah. You know? yeah. Like, it, it, I'm a big Paul Verhoeven fan. And, yeah, me too. And he made a very specific kind of movie, and Starship Troopers is that very movie. And, you know, it's funny. It's not the greatest film ever made, but people who love it really yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm one of them as well. Yeah, oh, and of course, it also features Clancy Brown and Michael Ironside. Oh, there you go. And Dina Meyer. Let's not forget her. Dina Meyer, yeah, she was great. Yeah, love her. I would have liked to have seen her do a lot, lot more. She keeps busy, though. She keeps busy. Yeah, she just keeps working, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that's my number 10. What about yours? All right, my number 10 is The Edge, starring Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins. This is back when Alec Baldwin was still you know, a serious actor. Yeah. And uh, it's about two men whose plane crashes in the Alaskan wilderness, and they have to make their way back to civilization, fighting off a very angry bear while they're at it. And there's some other uh, intrigue and plots that go on in between. But I always – I love – kind of survival thrillers anytime it's you know man against the elements or man against a wild animal stuff i always enjoy those but this film is actually i've always thought was really good it's a lot yeah. better than sort of the type of you know genre film that it, it could have just been a simple you know uh guy in a bear suit you know yeah i mean you got two good actors right yeah and also the bear is a great actor because the bear then went on to do the revenant 
<laughs> that's right. And Brother Bear, he was good in Brother Bear as well. He's really gets around. Yeah, he really does. Uh, so that's my number ten pick. Good stuff. Yeah, I haven't seen that one in a long, long time though. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Good I'll have stuff. to watch that one again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, my number nine is Princess Mononoke. 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 Yeah. Mononoke. Yeah, I should get to. Should I should listen to the names of these things? Yeah, Princess Mononoke. <laughs> uh, Studio Ghibli film. As as with all their films, it's beautiful. It's wonderful animated animation. It's I love all the, uh, the the creature designs, especially the little the little forest spirits. You know, with the, the clicking heads that walk back and forth, mm-hmm. and it's a great story, really enjoyable. And it's Studio Ghibli, so it had to be on my list. Well, that's understandable, and I agree with everything you just said, except for pretty much everything you just said. So <laughs> I um I hey, you know what time it is, Phil? It's is it one of your controversial. Go on. It's time for Mike's controversial opinion of the week. What's it going to be this time? <laughs> I don't really like Studio Ghibli films at all. <sighs> I know, I know that Miyazaki is considered, yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, you know, the second coming of animation. I know that the Studio Ghibli films are very well loved around the world by everyone except for me. <laughs> I generally just do not like them. I will agree with you that it's a beautiful yeah. film. All of their films are are you know amazingly animated. I don't think there's a single one of them that I like. Oh, not even Spirited Away? No. Oh. No, I really just not a fan. Oh, that's it. So I know. I know. But you better find a new co-host. Oh, it's okay. There you go. There are, <laughs> there are some. I mean, like uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. It's just so bleak and depressing. It's true. I think but I think that's with lots. I think well, pretty much all of their films, though, there is that element of melancholy, which which goes through it all, like a loss of innocence or right. a loss of loved ones and things like that. So loss of my interest. Yeah. Loss of your Sorry. interest. Yeah. <laughs> things like that. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's well, it's, it is a controversial one. So add it to the list. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just yeah. keep a running tab. <laughs> all the things I can say to anger other movies. Well, I'm hoping fans. I have a controversial one. I haven't really had any controversial. No, ones, no. Me? Well, you'll get there eventually. That just means I'm, I'm too mainstream. You've Damn got it's... something to strive yeah. for, Phil. Okay, your next film, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> number nine. No, my number nine film is a movie that very few people have probably ever heard of. It is called The Wrong Guy. It stars Dave Foley from News Radio and Kids in the Hall and Calm Fiore, who's a great character actor who you'll recognize the minute you see mm-hmm. him. And it's a comedy. And basically, Dave Foley plays a guy who walks in right after his boss has been murdered, and he thinks that the police think that he did it, so he goes on the run. But the thing is, the police know he didn't do it because there's surveillance footage that shows the real killer. (laughs) So he spends the rest of the movie on the run from people who aren't chasing him. (laughs) And Colm Fiore plays the the actual killer who is trying to kill him. And it's, it's a slapstick, very silly, very funny movie. But, man, it makes me laugh because it is just hysterical. And it's uh, one of those movies I always try to make my mission to, to tell people about so they get a chance to watch it. So uh, that's my number nine pick. Well, I was I was aware of that film, but I've, uh, it's not one I've seen. Well, you definitely got to track it down because it is really funny. Yeah. Um, but as an added bonus, I actually talked to Colm Fiore just a couple of months ago, and I got to ask him about The Wrong Guy, and he shared some fun tidbits about that. And a while back, I interviewed Dave Foley, and I also got to ask him about the film. So here are Dave Foley and Colm Fiore sharing their reminiscences, if you will, about making The Wrong Guy. Why is The Wrong Guy one of the most criminally underrated movies of all time? Uh, um, well, I guess we said, oh, for that we owe Disney. Yeah, uh, really? We, we made it, uh, we made it with, uh, Disney was going to be our U.S. distributor, mm-hmm. and through Hollywood Pictures, but in the middle of production, they folded Hollywood Pictures, mm-hmm. so we suddenly didn't have an entity that was supposed to be distributing it, 
And so it was put on the shelves at uh, Disney for five years and never released to, you know, never got a theatrical release, never even got a DVD or a TV release for, for, for over five years. Right. But it's definitely something I'm incredibly proud of. You know, my my writing partners, Jay Kogan and Dave Higgins, and I, you know, we, we set out to just write, you know, our version of, you know, an, you know, an early Steve Martin movie or mm-hmm. Woody Allen. We wanted to write a really funny, silly movie, you know, and I think we, we got to make, we got to make pretty much exactly the movie that we wanted to make. So, you know, and I think it's, I think it's very funny. It is. Every time we, every time we show it to people, they like it. That's well. I had the same experience because it's a, it's a movie. I, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of the film, and I've played it for a number of my friends over the years. And everybody who watches it just loves it. And I just, you know, I wanted to. T- I, don't, I imagine you don't get asked about it in interviews too lot, too much. So I wanted to let you know that you have some diehard fans of the wrong guy out there. Well, thanks. I know it's, it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a cult film amongst comedy people in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it was even even before we made it, it was sort of a cult thing. The script was being bootlegged all over town. Oh. Yeah. Writers were all making copies of it and passing it on to each other. Hmm. You know, so it was like something all, you know, the whole comedy community was reading before we made it. Thank you. Uh, reaching back a bit on your resume, I'm, I'm a very big fan of one of your more obscure movies, the one that's also one of your few forays into straight comedy, and that's the film The Wrong Guy, um, which I you remember making. It it's is, a classic actually. in the genre. It is a highly. I, I can't go to film. a university campus without somebody going, "Oh, you're not just you're not a super cop. You're just an ordinary idiot." It's one of my favorite <laughs> awesome. films. I'm glad to know that because it's one of those films I'm always telling people to, to track down. You know, so I was just curious if that was a, you know a fun experience for you to get to kind of you know work in that comedy horizon and, and turn out a film that is. You know, you know and well, classic. also because you no, know, because the beauty of it is that you know, and I've done a few now. Uh, geez, I really have done a few with Jennifer Tilly. Uh, that was the first one. We've done like three so far. But to be able to trust that she and Dave Foley would be funny, and I just had to be straight. And, and right. how funny is it now when the guy down in the basement hands me an Iranian passport? I mean, that just gets funnier as the years go by. Yep. I said Swiss passport. And, and, and I get to be the straight guy. I mean, the character, I insisted not have a name in my chair, you know, on those director's chairs as we stand by mm-hmm. for action. It just said T-Killer, which T nice. stands for the killer. Right, right. I just thought it was the most fun in the world. And I'm waiting and longing for them to, to redo it and reissue it with some of the deleted scenes because there's some funny stuff that didn't make it in the final. Because I don't know if you knew or were following the Hollywood lore at the time, but... The arm of Disney or Paramount or whatever it is that we were working under kind of collapsed on its own weight as oh. we were filming, and we kind of got orphaned. And oh. so, and that was in, as we went into post-production, and so there wasn't as much support and push for it. So it ended up being, you know, having to be slightly cult-like. But right. it's, it's a terrific picture, and I think very funny, and I loved being part of it. If they were going to do... Um, uh, wrong guy too. I keep telling people. I said, look, it's like the fugitive. Only Harrison right. Ford's a complete idiot. He's on the run, but right. no one's actually chasing him. Right. And, it, and whenever I, I meet somebody who's in on this, I go, you know, Jones, enema bag Jones. I mean, <laughs> that stuff is just it works. Ah, that was good to to hear. I like that.
Yeah, so sort of our second special guest in a yeah, way, if you yeah. will. A little a little tidbit from from Colm Fiore there. Again, if you don't if you don't recognize the name, look him up. You'll definitely know him as soon as you see him. He's been in a lot of great films. Uh, the Riddick films he was in with yeah. with uh, Vin Diesel and just so many other things. It's hard to list them all. He was in the he was in the, the most recent uh, season four of House of Cards. He was the general. Yeah. Right there, you go. That's my number nine pick, Phil. How about your number eight? My number eight. It's a horror film. Well, horror sci-fi. It is Event Horizon. Liberate tutta me. That's the one. Uh, yeah. lo- lovely film. Uh, directed by mm. Paul W.S. Anderson. And sorry, Paul, it's probably your best film because <laughs> I, d- I don't really rate much of the others. They have the moments, have enjoyable things, but I really enjoyed Event Horizon. Stars Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, uh, who else? Kathleen Quinlan, Jolie Richardson. It's a, it's a ghost story set on a spaceship. And it's, uh, I, I just thought it was great fun. I went to see it at the big Yeah, it's a creepy creep. flick. Yeah, cre- creepy. Uh, it's got a good soundtrack. It's a bit over the top in places, but it's got great... I love the sh- design of the ship and uh, just, just what goes on. Yeah, good choice. I, I I can't say I don't like it. can't say I love it. It's sort of in the middle mm-hmm. for me, but you know, it, it's a good choice. It's a very interesting film. It's, yeah, sure. it's one of those ones whenever you're flicking through the channels late at night. If it's on, you just have to watch it to the end. One of those films. We all love those films. Right, right. Yep, definitely. So what about your number eight? All right, my number eight is Austin Powers, International Man <laughs> of Mystery. Uh, that's the first Austin Powers film. I don't think I have to say too much about yeah. it. I saw I saw it in theaters on opening night, I'm proud to say. A lot of people saw that movie on video for the first time, but uh, since I was such a big fan of So I Married an Axe Murderer, which was Mike Myers' previous oh, film. A, yeah, I love that one as well. Exactly. Uh, I went to see Austin Powers' opening night, and uh, I loved it, of course. So uh, there you go. Very funny film. That's my number well, eight. Well, it almost made my list, but it didn't quite. Oh, all right. But yeah, it's, uh, it's always always enjoyable. It always makes me laugh. For my number seven, I've got James Mangold's Copland. Excellent. Excellent choice. Sylvester, thank you very much. Star Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Peter Berg, Janine Garofalo, Robert Patrick, Michael Rappaport. I mean, with a cast like that, it's an amazing cast. Yeah, it really is. And it's, but it's, it's still one of those films that not everybody's seen or even heard of. It's very underappreciated. Yeah, and it's it's one of Stallone's best acting roles because if you haven't seen it, he plays a cop who's he's not a big action he, hero in this film. He's just playing a, a sheriff who's trying to do the best he can with the situation that's going on around him. But it's uh, really worth watching. It's a good, good drama, good thriller. And with an amazing cast. Couldn't agree more, Phil. Couldn't agree more. Mm. All right, so my number seven film is a movie I think might show up on your list. We'll see. Okay. It is The Game, directed by David Fincher and starring Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. It is a twisty thriller that is funny in that it sort of gives you the entire movie in just the setup. Yeah, yeah. But then you still don't know what's going to happen until the very end. And I love it. Love it, love it, love it. It's just a fantastic thriller. And honestly... It, it should have been higher on my list, but this is such a tough year. Yeah, lots, lots of big big films, good films out this in this 97. Yeah, a lot of really good stuff came out this year, so it only came in at number seven, but it is a film that I love quite a bit. Yeah, it's a so, great film. All right, moving on. So my number six is LA Confidential. Again, it's another great, like Copland, it's got an amazing cast. We've got Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, David Stratham, Kim Basinger and Danny DeVito, and it just oozes style. It's an amazing. It's based on a loosely based on a James Elroy novel of the same name, and it's just it's a great it's a great crime thriller with some amazing characters. And you think you think the bad ones, people you think are the bad ones, are aren't actually that bad, and vice versa. And it's uh, yeah, a wonderful film. Absolutely. You know what I love about like Confidential is. Every time I watch it, I basically forget what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah I do. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter. It's always one of those when I watch it, I'm like, I don't remember the story at all. And then I watch it and I get completely engrossed yeah. in it from start to finish again. So, so yeah. many nice little bits and things. I'm just 
just just the way it's all put together, the set dressing and the, the, the clothes and everything. Yeah, brilliant film, brilliant film. All right, so my number six is Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy, which stars Ben Affleck and Jason Lee and Joey Lauren Adams. And I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. I make no bones about that. But Chasing Amy is hands down my favorite film of his. It's the one that I think he best combined his sensibilities of, yeah. you know, cheap, lowest common denominator humor and also a real heartfelt story that was much more realistic in its portrayal of people's relationships than any of his other movies had been up until that point. And for the most part since then as well. Yeah, so wasn't quite as, wasn't quite as silly as some of the previous films. Right, right. But still a very funny movie and has yeah, a lot yeah. of great lines that I can quote. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those films that, you know, it came out at a certain time in my life, you know, as I was in my early twenties and, you know, I was in love with all of his movies and this was the one that, you know, really hit home for me. And, uh, I've, watched it a million times and never get tired of it so that's chasing amy yeah another great film which it almost made my list but didn't okay but uh but it's yeah i do i do like kevin smith's films so for my number five we've got donny brasco uh directed by mike newell starring al pacino and johnny depp johnny depp's playing playing an undercover cop who mixes up with the mafia and becomes best friends with al pacino's character and it's uh i, I love uh, i like mafia films i like undercover cop films and Pacino and Depp were both on the top of the game with this one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Phil. Couldn't agree more. It's a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's one, again, I hadn't seen for a while, but it was uh, doing the list, reminding me of it. And uh, I'm going to be putting that on, I think, over the next few days. Yeah, yeah. Always worth watching. Mm. Well, my number five, we're starting to get into the territory now where most of the films on my list you've already mentioned. So okay. I will, uh, I'll move along pretty quickly at this point. <laughs> my number five, Starship Troopers. Uh, much like you, it's I think it's a great film that's, you know, it's silly and over the top, but it's it's just good science fiction action with a neat kind of satirical edge to it. And uh, I love it. I love it. So it was a little higher on my list than on mm-hmm. yours. Uh, but it is, it's a really good film. I, I never really didn't enjoy any of the sequels, to be honest. Yeah, they're all kind of garbage, yeah. but yeah. The, the the first one's a classic. Which is so. a shame. I was hoping they'd sort of carry it on a bit more. but Yes, yeah, so, you know, I, I think it's inevitable at some point they're going to remake it, though, and then hopefully they can kind of make it and relaunch the whole saga with, you know, better, more. Because all the sequels went direct to video. That's, yeah. That's you know, the they thing, had yeah. low budgets and stuff, so I think maybe they could make a proper franchise out of it, you know, given enough time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, my number four is Conair. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, it's just it's just one of these ones. It's uh, directed by Simon West. Uh stars Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, John Malkovich, Steve Buscemi, Comini, Ving Rhames, Danny Trejo. It's it's a stupid action film, but it's just one of those ones where I just have a big smile on my face whenever I watch it. I can understand that. I, I love those kinds of movies, but for some reason, that movie, I just never... I mean, I, I, it's enjoyable. Yeah. I think I like it more now than I did when it came out. Maybe I think I was expecting too much from it when it came out, you know? Yeah. But it's it's just one that I was never able to really fully embrace well, all that much. But, but you Don't know. get me wrong, no. I'm surprised it's as high as it is on my list. But as I was going through it, I was going, but I'd, yeah, I'd rather watch that one above this, do that. Yeah, and it just yeah. worked its way up. Yeah, but it's no, just that's what it comes down to, you know? John Malkovich is Cyrus the Virus and Steve Buscemi's character. I love the fact Stephen Buscemi's character is, the, is always told, told he's the, the he's the the worst of the worst right right and he, he just basically plays steve buscemi throughout it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly lots of fun bits it's one of nicholas cage's good films yep yep uh, it's uh i think it's just the length of his hair worked for him on that one <laughs> <But> yeah, <laughs> sure, that was my sure. number four yeah. Conair. 
All right. Very good. Well, here we get into the interesting uh, territory for me um, because I think my top four films probably all would qualify as four of my favorite films of all time. Okay. And so I honestly had a really hard time when we started looking at 1997 because these are four films that I've seen dozens of times. I love them all. I mean, honestly, any one of these four if it was a different year, would have easily been my number one. Yeah. But I couldn't make them all number one. So it, putting them in order was really challenging. I was, I was surprised how many good films there were in this year. I didn't realize they were all the same year. Yeah, it was 97 was a surprisingly good year mm. for movies, actually. Yeah. So at number four, I have L.A. Confidential, uh, yes, which we've already spoken yeah. about. Um, but I obviously love it uh, as, as much as you, if not more. And it's, it's just a brilliant film. And like I said, I love that every time I watch it, it's like watching a new movie yeah. all over again. Yeah. That's what I got. Very good. Well, my number three, we're in the top three now. Yeah, my number three is Luke Besson's The Fifth Element. Mm, yes. Starring Bruce Willis, Mila Jovovich, uh, Gary Oldman and it's just it just looks amazing it's got like one of the best future scapes future cities i love all the work of uh jean mobius girard and all those like french you know the french european comic book artists yep. i think it's because it's got luke besson's the, the whole european sensibility to it it's a bit it's a sci-fi film which is a bit different i know some people don't quite like it or it feels like the last half sort of it changes pace a bit but i think it just works really well the, on, the only thing reason why it's probably not higher is because of because uh, of Chris Tucker's character. I can understand the character and why he's like that, but it was just a little bit too much. I mean, he, he works well. It's just a bit too too much in your face, and that's the only that, that's yeah. the only downside to the film for me personally. I like I like Fifth Element. Yeah. I, I I enjoy it, but it didn't it didn't make my list. Well, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. But uh, Bruce Willis, it's one of Bruce Willis's good roles as well. He just yeah, yeah. I got the impression. I'm not sure if he actually did, but he seemed to seemed to be enjoying himself. Yeah, which has been a while since that happened. But yeah, I I, I yeah. agree. I think he definitely had fun making that film. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Luke Besson's Valerian, which seems to be along similar lines, because that's based on another comic book. Right, right, yeah, that should be so, fun. Yeah, looking forward to that one. So what about your number three? All right, well, my number three, once again, a film that's been on your list, and it is Copland, which is a movie I've been championing since it came out. I think Stallone's performance in it is brilliant. The fact that he didn't get an Oscar for it, to me, is a major oversight. Yeah, And yeah. it's one of those movies I just love. It's a big ensemble cast. It's a sprawling storyline. Very similar to L.A. Confidential in that respect. I mean, they're different movies, but it's just this... It's such a great film that's so overlooked, and I've introduced it to many people, and I watch it actually every couple of years, and I never, ever get tired of it. And as a special bonus, not long ago, I interviewed Robert Patrick, and I got to speak <sighs> to him about Copland. And so here's what he had to say about that. Starting at the beginning, how did you get involved with the film? Oh, that's a great story. Probably the most interesting one I have about the uh, about the film, okay. amongst others, I guess, but uh, probably the most interesting one. I was in New York doing press for the film Strip T, and uh, Pete Berg, the director, then he was just an actor. Right called me and asked me and my wife to join him at the uh, Oak Room at the Plaza for drinks. And we went over there and we joined him there. And he had uh, Merrill Poster, an executive with Miramax, with him. Right. And during the course of the evening over drinks, she said, what are you doing? And uh, I said, you know, I'm here doing some press for striptease and she said no i mean i got a project that we've been having a problem casting this one role would you be interested in reading the script and i said Shh, you know what, what project are we talking about she said copland and i said oh hell yeah i'd love to read that and uh, i'd love to meet the director let's do it tomorrow they got me the script and i read it sort of the next 
day while I was doing the press for striptease intermittently anyway and ended up meeting Jim Mangold and uh, and Jim said, would you read for me? And I said, absolutely. And now, so so here you come and obviously you, you were an experienced actor by this point, but this was certainly a really high profile project. And, and here you come into this cast, you've got Keitel, De Niro, Stallone, Ray Liotta, you know, were you in any way, not intimidated, but, you know, kind of in awe of some of the people around you, or did you just, did you just jump into it and say, you know, I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it? Well, uh, all of the above. <laughs> um, I had heard about the project, and I didn't tell Meryl Poster this when she brought it up, would you like to come read for it? I had heard about it, and I think I had even tried to get in on it, mm-hmm. and hadn't had much success. So ironically, meeting her in New York and the invitation, you know, I, I, I took full advantage of it. Now, I hadn't read the script, but I knew who was involved. And it was a daunting cast. Right. You know, uh, it certainly was a little intimidated and also inspired. And that's kind of where you want to be creatively. You would like to think that you can get in there and play with those guys and, uh, that's an exciting notion, and um, you you want to see if you can succeed or not. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I was uh, intimidated, I was excited, and I was inspired. What was the atmosphere like on set? Because obviously, it's kind of a dark movie. Then you've got people like you and and Stallone and Keitel, and even even the women on the film, like Edie Falco and and Janine Garofalo and, and Annabelle Shore, are kind of kind of tougher personalities. Was it was it a really intense film set, or you know, did you guys have fun while you were making the movie? I remember it as being a very fun experience Mm -hmm. and a very intense experience as well. Right. So equally, uh, you know, I think we all realized we were in something special. If you were to ask me my favorite films that I've done, Copland is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if people say, what's your favorite performance? It's one of my top favorite performances. And... That's all because of Jim Mangold. Right. And Mangold writing it and directing it, and you knew you were in on something, you know, right up, right at the cusp of something really great could happen. And then you look around, you're working with that whole cast. Everywhere around you is somebody talented. It was, you know, an exhilarating experience. I was so intimidated by the fact that I didn't have a New York accent. I flew in early and arranged to meet with the New York City Police Department and started to hang out with cops. Mm -hmm. And they thought I was there to watch their procedure and their uh, tactics and so forth, but I was really there to absorb their accents and their the way that they interacted on a personal level. And it was a blessing, and uh, I was able to, you know, catch on to the the accent right away. Mm -hmm. But uh, my first day was a scene with Robert De Niro, in which I only had to say two words. Right. Uh, yeah, hey. <laughs> That's all I had to say was, yeah, hey. And, you know, I never worked with the guy, and he's a, he's a legend, mm-hmm. and certainly somebody that uh, I look up to. And, uh, Jesus Christ, I just remember I was so scared of, <laughs> you know, just whatever. Yeah. Being, you know, you had to be prepared for whatever was going to be thrown at you, but I was I was preoccupied with hoping I sounded New York enough. Right. And, 
it turned out to be quite a funny day. I don't know why, but that, that anecdote just brought me. No, it's, that's a great story, actually. So, so comparing this film, I'm, I'm curious. You know, obviously Terminator 2, you know, put you on the map and, and really introduced you to the world at large. But then this movie sort of gave you, you know, really kind of showed the world that you could handle, like, a you know, a real dramatic role. Which one do you think had more of a long-term impact on your career? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, uh, certainly I cannot run from the shadow of Terminator 2. <laughs> right. Uh, that, 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 that I will forever be associated with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do think that Copland did help give me credibility. Right. Uh, not only with the audience, but with my fellow castmates mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, perhaps the film community at large. Right. It's interesting because, you know, I had no doubt. Uh, I had confidence in myself, but I don't think I really realized how big that character I created was and how it was going to overshadow pretty much everything I did thereafter. So Copland definitely helped me. And, I, you know, I still believe that there are people that would see Copland and not even know it's the same guy. Sure. And that is the greatest compliment I can get because I worked real hard on that role. And, uh, you know, not only for, for the audience, but for myself. And, uh, and I, I am very proud of it as a result. That's a good question. Man. Well, thank you. Boy, Phil, we're just racking up the special guests, aren't we? We certainly are. It's, uh, but just, what always got me the cop plan, though. I remember, I think a friend, friend of mine, Paul, he mentioned it. And I eventually got to see it, and I was just blown away by how good it was. Yeah, it's it's terrific. I, I really love that movie. It's Like I said, any other year, that would have been number one. And, and the fact yeah. that it was actually number three... Tells you what a hard time I had with this with this year's list. Well, let's uh, it's shaping up now. We're into the final two. Yeah, what do we got? My number two is you've already mentioned it. It's David Fincher's The Game, mm-hmm. starring Michael Douglas and his trip to consumer recreation services. Right, and as, as you say, it's it's all there in the beginning, but it's just great seeing seeing the game progress. And you go, well, is this? I, I love I love watching it and you, the first time, just going. Well, is this part of the game? Right. But then, then you go, well, how could everything be? But it just, yeah. it just, you just go with it, don't you? Yeah, it's the, nothing like that first time seeing it. I mean, it yeah. holds up to repeat viewings, but that oh, yeah, first yeah. time was just uh, mind blowing. Oh, yeah, and the ending as well. And I love Michael Douglas, you know. So yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, great film. All right, well, my number two then, a film that's been on your list as well, and it is Donnie Brasco, which, like I've said, in any other year yeah. would have been number one. I absolutely love Donnie Brasco. I think the relationship between Johnny Depp and Al Pacino is brilliant and I like you, I like mob movies, but there's something about, this is one of those movies that, kind of like we talked about The Crow last last week, where I think people like this movie yeah. and I think people regard it as a good movie, but for me it is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, I just love this movie and I watch it and every time I watch it, I just I'm always, you know, gutted by the end yeah. and, you know, it's it's brilliant. So if you haven't seen Donnie Brasco, I think Phil and I can both heartily recommend it to you. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, as you say, the, the relationship between Pacino and Depp's characters are just it's just a fantastic cinema. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm curious, Phil, did we end up at the same place for number one? Or, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Could different be. places. Let's see. What do you got? Well, it's a film. My number one is a film which stars Alan Arkin. Stars Dan Aykroyd. Nope. Stars Minnie Driver and John Cusack. Definitely not. No, it's a uh, gross point blank. There you go. Good choice. Good film. Yes. A great soundtrack as well. Yep. But it's the one where John Cusack's playing a hitman who's very good at his job, but he's bored and he goes to see Alan Arkin, who's... I love those scenes with Alan Arkin, who's his therapist. 
and he goes back to his high school reunion and it's uh, lots of fun there's a really one of the uh, cracking fights scene the one in the the hallway when he's fighting the russian guy yeah yeah it's like one of the short vicious little fights but it's really good and it's a very funny film yes it is indeed yeah good choice i'm mm-hmm. i'm a little bit crestfallen i think is the word though that my number one pick didn't even make your top 10 <sighs> phil oh what I'm, is it i'm gonna have to hope it's because you haven't seen it oh go on because if not maybe i'll be looking for a new code yeah it could be a controversial <laughs> one this go on so my number one pick is Gattaca. <gasps> oh, that was on my list. Oh, good God. Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah, it should have. Oh. Gattaca starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman and Jude Law. And I honestly would have to say if I was putting together my top five movies of all time, Gattaca would be one of them. Now, I know I say this is one of my all-time favorite movies a lot, so we always take that with a grain of salt. But if I had to take five movies to a desert island, Gattaca, hands down, would be one of them. And what's interesting is it's not a movie where much happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a very plot-heavy film. It's not an action-heavy film. It's science fiction, but it's light science fiction. But it's this – I hesitate to call it a drama because to me that implies a certain kind of movie. But it's this this movie about the human spirit, which sounds awfully pretentious. And it's one of those movies I kind of hate talking about because there's no way to talk about it. I know know you mean. And make it sound as good as it is. But it – to me, that's a movie that will change your life when you watch it. Because it's like it's like reading a, good, a really good science fiction novel. Yeah, it's watch, watching Gattaca. Right, exactly. It's it's a brilliant film. It makes me cry every time I watch it. I find it so inspiring and so moving, and just such a beautiful film. And the director Andrew Nichol has gone on to make a bunch of other films, who, none of which have even come close to being as good as Gattaca. And every time he puts a new movie out, yeah. I go and watch it, and I'm always disappointed. And yeah, because he did that. Was it In Time? That one was... Yeah, he did In Time. He did yeah. The um, the Host, which was one of the YA movies. He did Lord of War. He did Sim- Simone or Sim 1. Yeah. Every movie he puts out, I go and watch it, and I'm constantly disappointed by them. But Gattaca, if you haven't seen it, cannot recommend it highly enough. It is one of the best films of all time, as far as I'm concerned. It is a brilliant movie. This is just not to go in a thing, but it's one of the one. I, it was in my top ten, but you know, I was I was doing like the list of the names, uh-huh. and then uh, before I do the recording, I do like a little we go over the list again and I change things around and write a bit more about them. Right. And I, I just blanked Gattaca. Yeah, that happens. Oh, right. You it should have been in my top ten. Oh, good God! That's it's right okay. here. Oh. <laughs> well, anyway, it makes it more interesting list. That's oh. right. That's right. I guess I'll forgive you though, Phil, since yeah, it was left yeah. out by accident. I'll let I'll let it slide this time. Yeah, it was going to be in my top five all right well they're good good all right so i'm glad we're in agreement on that at least so all right well hey phil great list overall though even though you left gattaca out i I like a lot of your choices why don't you uh tell us what were the top 10 films at the box office i know gattaca wasn't one of them unfortunately no uh, no but uh and lots there's quite a few films which you didn't mention at all right well you know sometimes the best the biggest money makers are not the best films so Mm. what do you got what's the top 10 well the top 10 was uh james bond film number 10 tomorrow never dies Mm -hmm. love bond but not a big fan of that one entry in the franchise same here yeah. Number nine, my best friend's wedding, the Julie Roberts film. Yeah. Number eight, I didn't. It could have, would have been in my top ten, but it, it's an old film that was reissued. It was Star Wars: The Special Edition. Oh, right. I didn't think we should count that. Yeah, yeah. Number seven was Goodwill Hunting, which was almost in my top ten. I was bubbling yeah. under a bit. Yeah, that was close too for me. Number six, as good as it gets. Not a fan. <laughs> Jack Nicholson, as we know, not a yeah, fan. Yeah. It's, I mean, I do like Jack Nicholson, but it's not by not one of my favorites. I know people who just love it and watch it over and over, but yeah. Not that one. Uh, number five, Air Force One. Mm-hmm. Good film, good film. House and Four and Gary Oldman. Yeah, I do, I do like that as well. But I do too. Uh, number four, Liar Liar. Yeah, that's funny. Jim Carrey, yeah, which is another one of his I enjoy watching. Right. Number three then was Lost World, Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. 
which never sort of never really worked for me that no, much. No, it wasn't it wasn't a great one. Yeah. Number two, Men in Black. Yep, that's a good one. That made my honorable which, mention list. Yeah, it's just yeah. fun. Yeah, I really liked the uh, Men in Black three though. I thought that was a really nice return to form. Yeah, that was pretty clever. I'm in, I'm interested to see what they're going to do with the Men in Black. Yeah, uh, twenty one Jump, Jump Street, Street crossover. Yeah. That should yeah. it's either going to be amazingly awesome or completely terrible. I think. Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it's got. It's got the potential to be do really well at the box office. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. But we'll have to wait and see. And number one was a film which I, I really really don't care for, but it's Titanic. Titanic was of course the big the big behemoth of nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. Uh, I did want to mention two honorable mentions real quickly. Yeah. Uh, the first one was Boogie Nights, simply because I do love that film. We talked about it a few episodes ago. Yeah. Episode five. It was just outside my top ten, but I do love that film. Yeah. And I want to give a little love to a movie that I think I'm the only person in the world who's ever seen it. Uh, much like the wrong guy, it is called. Best Men, and it stars Dean Cain, Andy Dick, Sean Patrick Flannery, and a bunch of other people that aren't big stars. Um, yeah, the, the cast doesn't really, but often that's the way it goes. Sometimes these things surprise you. Yeah, it's, it's one of those movies. It's about a guy who's getting, oh, Drew Barrymore's in it. He's a guy getting married. He's getting out of prison. He's getting married. His friends stop at a bank on their way to his bachelor party, and they end up robbing it without him knowing it. But he gets sucked into it all, and it's it's clearly one of those films that was made after Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it sort of has like the flashbacks and that that's very kind of Tarantino esque. And it's it's a very '90s film. It's not one of those movies that, that you know is going to hold up in the way that something like Gattaca or Copland yeah. does. But I have a soft spot for it, and it came out on DVD a couple like a probably a year ago or so, and I watched it because I was like, oh, I remember this film. I rented it from Blockbuster or whatever, <laughs> and you know, I really enjoyed it actually. It was a really fun film, even even twenty years on, almost. Yeah, one of one of those films where there's no no really major names, but it's just an enjoyable watch. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. exactly it. It's an enjoyable watch. It's worth tracking down if it's one of those nights that you're bored. I don't know if it's online or streaming or whatnot, but if you come across it, it you know, it's a fun film. It's worth watching. So okay, well, there's a yeah, a couple more honorable mentions from me. There was uh, Face Off, mm-hmm. which is just another fun, silly thing, but it's a little bit too silly. Yeah. And a couple of other ones, fun ones, which I always enjoy watching is Conspiracy Theory, the Mel Gibson one. Yep. Just because I love conspiracy sure. kind of stuff. And also Anaconda. Oh, yeah, I do love just, that movie. Just because, yeah, I love John Voight doing that layer. He does yeah. it just... It's just. I, I yeah. love giant animal movies. You give me yeah. a giant snake, I'm there. So that's a good yeah. one. That's a fun film. But it wasn't going to be in the top. No, no. So that's 1997. There you go. So those are our top 10 favorite films of the year. Feel free to let us know what your favorite films of 1997 were. I think it's about time that we can share how people can get in touch with us. Phil, why don't you uh, take that away? Yes, so you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. We're on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can listen to us uh, by searching for after the ending on iTunes. And we're also on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we've got an email address. Do you want to tell them that, Mike? Yep. You can email us directly at afterthending at verizon.net. And like you said, Phil, we're on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please, please feel free to go over to either one of those and rate us and or review us and tell your friends about us. Because, you know, us little podcast guys, we can use all the help we can get. So spreading the word and giving us some reviews is really one of the best things that you can do to help support what we hope is your favorite film podcast. You can leave comments on all the various places as well. We do read them all. Uh, We appreciate any comments you have, and we look forward to reading your thoughts on this and future episodes. Yeah, we love to hear from our audience, so please don't uh, don't be shy. So, Phil, where can people find you specifically online? You can find me mainly at liveforfilms.com, where we talk about movies, uh, lots of movie news, reviews, trailers, posters, cool artwork, and the like. And that's also 
on Twitter and Facebook. That's where I can be found. And what about you, Mike? Where can they find you? Well, the main place to track me down is at wordsoutloud.com. And that is my author website where I also uh, share news about the podcast. And we've got a blog and all kinds of cool stuff. And most importantly, if you swing over to wordsoutloud.com, you can get a free audiobook absolutely free as we have mentioned before I think you might even like it so uh, check that out you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mike Spring official so Phil what do we have coming up next week next week we will be doing the top 10 of 1955 yeah we're going to take it back a little bit yeah which should be I think this will be the 6th year we've done Yes, yes. So, yeah, and that's the first one from the 50s. Yep. Should, should be interesting because there was some classic films in the 50s. Yeah, it's a different It's a different time. It'll be a different yeah. kind of films, I think. Yeah, hopefully there'll be a few films that people haven't heard of or, you know, we'll point them in the right direction to go, you know, have a, have a watch of them. Yep. So I'm looking forward to discovering myself what was in 1955. Yep. And the films we'll be doing after the endings will be Top Gun, which was a little film starring Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah. I think a few people have heard of that one. Yeah, a few people, yeah. And we will also be looking at the classic comedy horror film, The Monster Squad. One of my favorites. A movie yeah. I enjoy greatly. So I think uh, that's a cult classic if you have not seen it. And whether you're watching along at home or not, that is one that I definitely recommend checking out before you listen to the next episode. Not that we won't be able to keep you entertained either way, but it's a really, really fun, enjoyable, a very endearing film from the 80s. That It holds up yeah. quite well, and I, I yeah. think you'll enjoy our endings even more uh, if you've seen it. So track that one down if you haven't watched it before. Yeah, and if you do watch it, you will find out that the Wolfman has nods. <laughs> he absolutely does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there you go. So that's us for this week. As always, we thank you for listening. Yes, many thanks to every, every single one of you for listening to our wild ramblings of ramblingness <laughs> yeah yeah oh and also there will also be next week there will be another mini segment that's right and another exciting new feature that we will probably make up sometime between now and then yeah. so let so us know you... which ones of those you're enjoying and maybe we'll even bring one of them back yeah because because yeah we might bring crazy corporate classic cast and cartel of crazy climaxes but who knows <laughs> i'm just glad you like saying that so much yeah, i do i really do like saying it. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you all enjoy your movies between now and the next episode. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. But his sort of... Yep, yep. Okay. That's the outtakes. Yeah, already. <laughs> Never yeah, a shortage of, of those. <laughs> Lucky us. <laughs> so, I, um, I am a... I'm, good Lord. <laughs> So that's guys and dolls. What a um, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> take that again. Yeah, always. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why I said that. It was like nothing. I was like, I, I'll just blow air and it'll yeah. form words. <laughs> so then we, t- we fast forward to 2032. Where? Where? There we go. That was my burp. Sorry. That's interesting. Not the burp. The. Uh, yeah. The. <laughs> Hold on, is that Taco Bell? <laughs> yeah. Wait, give me, let me, let me, let me see. Uh, yep, yep, I think it was. Okay. Uh, all right, anyway, we're bringing the class tonight, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on, Phil, to one of our new mini features that we have tonight, today, something. I'll do that whole thing all over again. <laughs> Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, crap, I just realized that's the one I didn't do. Oh, I knew there was somebody else. <laughs> okay, here we go. Race for impact. Hold on, need a drink of water. <coughs> I was trying to be all dramatic and then <laughs> didn't work. And then you're like, a little dry. <laughs> mm.
And I actually interviewed Colm Fiore just a few months ago, and I actually talked to him. I actually said actually a whole bunch of times just then. All right, so that's my number eight pick, Phil. That's my number eight pick. Yeah, I said that right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's my number eight pick, Phil. Is that number eight or number nine? Uh, sorry, you're right. So I got I said the sentence right, yeah. but I got the number wrong. Awesome. 